Hello and welcome to a special Beaver Pod. Uh, today, in addition to Hugh and Lucy, we've got uh, Cambridge's uh, head of the veterinary school and epidemiologist and Beaver Council member and EVJ chairman, James Wood. Hi, all. Hi. Hello. So the reason we've got a special pod today is because we're right in the sort of scary start of the COVID-19 outbreak. Um and Lucy, you've got a sister who's a radiologist. What's what sort of feedback are you getting from her? Certainly that they're they're very concerned. You know, there's a there's a real threat out there, and the doctors and the hospitals are taking extreme precautionary measures. Um, being in radiology, she can obviously distance herself considerably better than others from patients, but she still has to be up and close to them to do biopsies and such like. So anything that's non-urgent is being deferred at this point. But um, naturally, they are having to be very cautious about waiting lists and and clocking up sort of queues of patients. So they're trying to forge on. And James, your sister is a GP who's perhaps got more more acute concerns. She's a physician. So she's a hospital physician, um, nephrologist in NHS uh, Scotland. Um, I had a chat with her last night and... um, you know, really, it's, I think it's, this stuff is really alarming for the medical um, services that we will all depend on. There's, there are going to be so many people that need ventilating um, as this epidemic passes through us. And um, the people who are most at risk, I think, of getting quite ill are the doctors who are going to be looking after us. And, uh, and that's where I think it's so important for us to be responsible about, about all of the things that we do or don't do now. And presumably those doctors will be getting quite, potentially quite a high dose of virus if they do come into contact with... It, it, it's, well, I mean, the, the, the very clear stories from doctors dying in China and Italy, and my understanding is that there are some intensivists that, who are in, um, in ICUs in North America already. Um, I don't know if that's the case in, in the UK. We haven't had so many cases yet, but I, I think we should expect it, and it's... It's really frightening. You know, these patients that are intubated, I mean, you have, you know, that's really difficult infection control um, for respiratory infections around that sort of scenario. And uh, we have to do everything that we're told to try and make sure that as few of us end up like that as possible. Absolutely. So, uh, well, I think we're all ears for you, James, at the moment. Where, where do you think this might have originated? Well, I would say this, wouldn't I? Because I've been working on viruses that come from bats that may be zoonotic and infect humans for most of the last 15 years. Um, this is a, an interest of mine that started with Hendra virus, which is a, a, another bat virus that infects horses and then may infect horse vets, actually, in many cases, and, um, and horse owners in Australia. Um, I, I think that the uh, molecular genetic evidence is very clear that this is highly likely to be a virus that comes from bats in China. Um, there is some uh, there is some virus sequences um, found in pangolins that were in a rescue center in southern China, which are very close to the uh, to the, the current epidemic virus. It's a little bit unclear what is to whether this um, is a virus that circulated in pangolins in the wild or whether they caught it in the process of being traded through these wildlife markets and so on. Um, but I, I think what is absolutely clear is that this is a wildlife virus, as so many new zoonoses are. Um, it's one of the greatest sources of zoonotic disease, just contact with wildlife. 
And and from your perspective, was this sort of thing utterly inevitable? I, I don't think it was inevitable. Um, I think it's really quite shocking um, how fast from what seemed like fairly small beginnings in that around that market just before Christmas in Wuhan, and look at the way it's exploded across the whole globe now. Um, I don't think that's inevitable, but because this virus has got the ability to transmit better than the SARS virus has, um, that's why we've got the spread that, that we never saw with SARS. Um, so it's it's maybe inevitable with this virus, but it's not inevitable with every virus that gets into humans from bats or other wildlife. And have you been have you been uh, clearly government is is setting policy. There are some there are some experts there advising. There's been quite a lot of keyboard warriors um, giving their opinions who seem to have become instant epidemiologists. But are you uh, are you doing anything at a at a sort of top level or are you are you being involved by government at all so so my involvement in government i mean i chair um defra's um exotic disease subcommittee of its science advisory council that would only really kick in for animal diseases this is a an entirely human epidemic so while we're looking and occasionally getting our small questions around you know infection in dogs and so on um, this is very much, despite the, the, the animal origin of this virus, this is a human epidemic. And this country is blessed that we have probably the strongest uh, quantitative epidemiology and modelling um, anywhere in the world. And there are a number of amazingly competent groups at Imperial College, at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, in Warwick, um, colleagues in Cambridge. And we have re remarkably strong science. And uh, what is great is that not only do we have strong science, but government is also listening to it. Um, yeah. And and we've got, I feel confident that we have real expertise underpinning the government policy. I mean, no one, this is um, unprecedented, uh, this epidemic. People have, have talked about the sort of, the, the possibility of this sort of thing happening for, for a, a number of years, but this is really the first time it's happened on this scale. And we're lucky that we've got such good science supporting our, our, our government, which unlike some other governments in the English-speaking world, um, this government does appear to be listening very closely to the science and coming through Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty, um, I think it's being really well communicated as well. Excellent, and uh, which is really good to hear. But Lucy and Hugh, presumably you, you're both out on the road dealing with punters in yards. Is this something that's cropped up um, in terms of government policy and and what government's doing. Has that cropped up with your clients? Lucy? Yeah, certainly I've had clients sort of mocking the, oh, we're not allowed to shake hands now type thing, <laughs> um, which, you know, I kind of laughed at, but also said, well, maybe we should not, you know. <laughs> and I think there is an element of people being blasé about it at this point because it's not in our faces. You know, the, the, the everyday person isn't seeing cases in front of them. So I think there is a public kind of... Um, sort of sense of being a little bit lackadaisical about it which we need to try and reinforce as as you know medical professionals and people with some scientific understanding that we do need to be very careful we do need to reduce contact and i think we have to be spreading that message and being leaders um as much as we can in trying to prevent that spread that is unnecessary absolutely and hugh have you have you found people chatting about government policy on these things 
Yeah, very similar to Lucy. I think I think there was a little bit of a lag phase, wasn't there? At the very beginning, there was a little bit of mocking and joking about the handshaking, but people are now taking it very seriously. And I think, you know, sort of, other than being a few days behind, I think the public are very on board. And and as James said, I think it's I think it's fantastic that the government have taken such an evidence based approach. And I think the public, and certainly the the horse owning public, really respect that. And I think it gives them a lot of confidence that the medical equivalent to their vet is dealing with with this outbreak on their behalf. So James, do you you have any views on the way government policy has developed? I think that the the, the blip in in the way that government policy has been, I'm actually communicated rather than than developed, relates to this whole thing of herd immunity. And I think that um, what is absolutely clear is that most epidemics um, subside in time because lots of the population get immune that's you know so, so you're remove, removing fuel from the fire because if you're immune you can't be you can't be part of the petrol um that's, that the fire can then burn and and i think that the government recognizes that but it there was a suggestion somewhere and it's been amplified by endless journalism uh, trying to make a conflict when there isn't really one it's been uh then herd immunity has been government policy instead of just something that's going to happen and we're trying to slow down the spread um, in the meantime is is a message uh, that, that I think is hasn't got got over I think I think that um, communications have gained the upper hand now but I think that the, there was a bit of a blip around that but I I think that this proportionate increase in um, social distancing and you know, not handshaking, not going to places where you're like, likely to pick up infection, um, is something that is being ramp- ramped up in a in a, a clever way. And I think that um, everyone can criticise. You know, we should have done it. You know, two weeks ago or three months ago. Well, if we'd done it three months ago, people would have got bored, and then you'd never have got them back on side. And and I think that's the issue that um, so many of the keyboard warriors really just don't appreciate. And what what about, I mean, there's been a fair amount of criticism of Cheltenham running in full. There's been a fair amount of criticism of, of, um, of schools still remaining open. What, what's your view of both of those things? So, so Cheltenham probably got away with it because they were early enough. You know, if he was in 10, eight, 10 days later with an exponential growth, you know, there would have been infected people there that that, um, that perhaps weren't when it was running last week. So, you know, that's a timing question. Um, I think that the, the issue around school closing is really complicated because the people most at risk of this particular virus, and there's very, very clear data from China and uh, I think now Italy as well, is the people who are most likely to die from this or get really ill are the elderly, particularly those with um, cardiovascular disease. And one of the things that happens when you shut schools is that grandparents get pulled in to look after the kids because everyone else is trying to go to work. Um, that's one thing. And the other thing is that so many people who work in the health service have got children at school. Um, and I think that, that uh, particularly the former point actually is a really good reason for us to be very cautious about shutting schools at this stage. We don't need our grandparents to be put at, at greatest risk of um, of meeting infection by having to look after their grandchildren. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, it's, it's, I think it's really as simple as that. And and I think that that everyone's just saying, oh, we've got to you know do everything we can. And actually, we've got to make sure that that we're, we're not um, that, that we're trying to stop people getting really and really dying. And, and the, a key point there is to protect the oldest in society. So, what's your? I mean, some really sobering stuff there. And and I think, by all accounts, now appears to be a pretty critical time. Would that be right? Yeah, I, I think I think it's not government policy. It's what we do in relation to the pretty clear guidance from from central government. This is advice coming from the chief medical medical officer. I think this is down to us now. This isn't you know what government is or isn't going to do. It's how well we are prepared to follow these social distancing measures. And I think that we've got to take responsibility now. And perhaps Lucy, as as, as you said earlier on, that means that that we have to be seen as responsible medical scientists in dealing with the public. What's, what's your practice doing at this stage to protect both its clients and, and, and its employees? Well, we've certainly introduced a policy by whereby which owners will drop off horses at the hospital and then leave and go back home rather than stay in the waiting rooms or you know, hang around uh, watching their horses be worked up. We're also trying to reduce the number of people coming into the practice. So that's owners dropping off samples or picking up medications. We're trying to encourage them to um, have them posted out or um, if they are going to drop them off, then they certainly don't go and speak to somebody at a desk. They just literally put something in a box and leave again. And similarly with our um, employees, we're doing the same thing. Anyone that doesn't have to be in a practice environment um, or office or pharmacy or anything like that, doesn't go there so us ambulatory vets are going around our normal appointments but not returning to base in between um, if we need drugs or equipment we we order it if you like over the phone and it's there to pick up without having to make contact with other people so it's amazing how much you can decrease contact in between individuals by just imparting these very simple measures actually we're using yeah. whatsapp actually <laughs> you know which yeah. is a fantastic use of, of, of modern communication to create you know drug drop-offs or equipment pickup um, scheduling so that no one has to really make contact with each other and that's working really well without disrupting flow um, and business as it were and Hugh uh, Hugh what about Lipbook? What what's what's the policy down there we're very similar to Lucy we're just instigating everything we can to decrease the contact and the close contact amongst people so again clients are not being allowed to to spend time in reception they're just dropping off and leaving and um, we had some residents and externs etc well not residents the externs who were were due to come especially ones from abroad they've all been cancelled and interestingly students going out with with ambulatory vets that's been stopped altogether because of the close confinement in the cars and then with regard to ambulatory vets very much working from home in a sort of out of hours methodology obviously doing a a full day's work but not popping into the office for a coffee and a catch-up and and doing everything we can to have samples dropped into boxes and then pharmaceutical supplies delivered into another box with your name on it so that you can just pick up the box so you know very similar to what lucy's saying and and just basically distancing ourselves from from one another and then within the other teams we've got reception trialing working from home tomorrow just one or two members and the same with the accounts department just to feel our way into remote working 
Yeah, yeah IT staff are having to step up now, aren't they, and produce yeah. lots of remote access, <laughs> which I think is probably putting them under a lot of pressure. But it makes you realise how, how much we can adapt, actually, which is, I think, a really positive positive step and positive um, sign. Absolutely. Um, and, and I understand that I've heard, whether it's true or not, that some, some vet schools are only operating on an emergency basis. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that that's the case in quite a lot of places in Italy. James, what's Cambridge doing on that front? So we haven't yet moved to emergencies only. I, I think that um, certainly on the equine side, our teaching uh, focuses on uh, first opinion ambulatory. And that's, um, I think, you know, people are much less inclined at the moment to call you out in any case. Um, and competitions are going to diminish and that's going to reduce the amount of, of, of work that um, is either directly related to competitions or because of the training for the complications. So, so we've not moved there, but it may only be a matter of time. But we, ha- we haven't moved to emergencies only, and we are still in the process of trying to deliver the end of our, our final year rotations, as actually nearly all of the vet schools are. Um, because we want to try and make sure that our our final year students, um, despite this unprecedented situation, actually manage to get out through that. And we're we're having very constructive um, conversations with with our CVS only uh, over uh, 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 reducing um, the need to finish off the last kind of couple of weeks of EMS and so on, which would normally be a requirement before you do your finals. And so. Um, there's lots of adaptive management of all of this, uh, the educational side of things, um, running. But we, are, yeah, we're still trying to trying to keep our our final year students um, in train to to get through to to um, finals now at the door this year. Absolutely. So, uh, sort of vet schools are obviously slightly different environments. But um, do you think there may come a point in the not too distant future where the advice is for all practices to reduce and only do ambulatory work, James, or do you think that's that's unlikely to happen? I, I think that um, horses are not going to stop getting colic. And, no. um, and actually, although horse owners can evidently pass, um, as any owner can, evidently pass the coronavirus on to us and our staff, it's less likely that horses are going to be able to do that. So um, if your staff are healthy and you've got a very ill horse presented to you, I don't think that the risks of doing surgery on that horse, um, other than the, clo- you know, the close contact with nursing afterwards and so on, necessarily is the, the, wrong, the wrong way to go. But this is where we need to make sure that, that our staff, our clients, are all self-declaring really carefully and really responsibly because there are ways of looking after animals um, and in many cases there are uh, there are enough people around the animals so that you can you can um, get horses presented to a vet by someone who is healthy and I, I think you know maybe in, a, in six weeks or so it's going to get easier because a number of us will have had it and therefore likely be immune um, and then those people will, will be able to do much more than they currently can where we're all slightly in lockdown. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and do you think, oh, you've, you've heard, James, what Lucy's practice and Hugh's practice is doing. Are there, are there extra things that you think we should be, as, 
as ambulatory practitioners or, or as practitioners generally be doing at this stage? We are um, obviously you know, social distancing between vet and client. Um, uh, we are asking all clients before they or when they contact us to uh, assure us that they are they haven't got a cough they haven't got a temperature and are not living with people that have got them um i think that those self um self declarations are actually really important um and lots of hand washing it doesn't need to be spirit i mean I, everyone is getting such sore hands from all of this spirit everywhere but good soap and water um which is rather less abrasive on the skin is very effective against this envelope virus so don't forget, you know, there's kind of the simple things actually can work really well. Good old fashioned hygiene. Yeah. <laughs> it is all that, isn't it? Um, and Hugh, where, I don't think either of your practices has got anyone that's ill at the moment. Uh, as, or I haven't heard that you have. But at what stage, you know, if you if you have a third of the practice off, are you going to be really struggling it do you have you looked at contingencies for that sort of situation well interestingly we're almost at that point now we sort of we don't have anybody that's right. tested positive but we like today out of the 10 ambulatory team three were away because they'd had a fever or a family member had had a fever overnight so we're we're kind of there um yeah. our contingency is just to to try and you know, work as efficiently as we can, focusing on the most important things in in the safest possible way. And I think that's going to have to be the the right way to go. And as James said, it's it's massively important that these that all employees are telling us the truth about what's going on in their in their family structures, that we can best reduce exposure and therefore you know the reduce the spread of it. Yeah. And I think at it's least... worth remembering that even if you're, you know, stuck at home, unable to come to work for any reason as an ambulatory vet, there's plenty of other things you can do, aren't there? I mean, it's a bit like being, you know, off on maternity leave or something else. You know, you could do some, or not maternity leave, I shouldn't have said that, but, you know, off, 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 unable to work, say, doing practical stuff. You, you can, you know, do some some client information stuff you could do some website updating you could do some social media posts for your practice you know there's lots of things you can try and do from the desk even if you're not hands-on clinical work that i think it's you know working from home in inverted commas isn't obviously the 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 idea that you get when you think of an ambulatory vet but you can certainly do lots from home that will help your practice as an employee absolutely, yeah. absolutely. and uh, beavers beavers now cancelled all its cpd for a for up until the end of May, at least. Um, but then there's, plenty, there's plenty of opportunity for reflective CPD and recording it on yes. the wonderful new RCVS One yes. CPD system. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> webinars. You know, you've got online. There's all sorts going on that can be can be a good James, use of time. <laughs> James, you wouldn't be on the RCVS council, would you? <laughs> <laughs> I represent my school on there, and I represent veterinary schools council there. Yes. <laughs> um, just on a on a on another note, there, Beaver. We've been discussing, um, we've been discussing what we could do to perhaps support people who are who are self isolating or who are ill. Um, uh, and anyone who's listening who has any ideas about what we could do to help out, give us a shout, and we'll try and do our best. Um, James, just to finish off with a bit of crystal ball gazing, as you're the expert in the room. God knows I'm not. Um, when do you, when do you think that the when do you think we'll start seeing a light at the end of the tunnel with this? I think we um, 
I think we've got a period where we're not really going to know what's going to hit us, um, what's hitting us uh, to come. I'm afraid it's going to be um, really a month or two before, of um, of really difficult times um, before we start seeing things really get better. I mean, I'm I'm really worried for the next period um, for for everyone. Aintree so has just been cancelled, by the way. Just a. a the Racing Post alert has just come up. Right, well, James, thank you very much for your expertise. Lucy and Hugh, thank you for your time, as always. Fingers crossed for everybody that, um, that we get through the other end without too much loss and too much trauma. Good luck, everyone. Thanks, thanks a lot, team. Thanks, Cheers. Everyone. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.